The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke from the third chapter. In the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip, ruler of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, ruler of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And John went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the paths of the Lord. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough ways made smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. The Gospel of the Lord. If you have attended worship over the years in any congregation that follows the lectionary assigned readings for Advent, you know that you can't get to Christmas without going through John the Baptist. Whether we like it or not, he always shows up on this second Sunday of Advent. Right after most of us have started to decorate our homes and do all of the kinds of things that remind us why we love this time of the year. For me, John is like the uninvited guest who shows up at your favorite party and starts to talk in a way that makes everyone feel uncomfortable. It's no surprise that he has been left out of nearly all of our other preparations for Christmas. Imagine a statue of John the Baptist at a retail center with a quote that says, turn around and go the other way. Imagine getting a Hallmark card that said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? In our homes, I would be surprised to see John featured in any prominent way in the decorations that we put out. It's just not the kind of space we want to create. But what would we miss if we didn't have him standing here today in an Advent sermon preached in 1928, a young German pastor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer challenged his congregation to wake up to the truth of John's message. It is quite remarkable, Bonhoeffer said, how calmly we contemplate God's coming. Whereas earlier peoples trembled before the day of God, and the world quaked when Jesus Christ walked among us. We've become so accustomed to the idea of divine love and of the coming at Christmas, says Bonhoeffer, that we no longer sense the awe that God's coming should awaken in us. He goes on to say, we have become dulled to the message. We only register what is welcome in it, what is pleasant forgetting the powerful seriousness of the fact that the God of the universe is approaching 
us on our small earth and is making claims on us. I wonder how Dietrich's congregation heard his words that day. I can't imagine that they came to church hoping and expecting for that to be the word they heard. But Bonhoeffer didn't leave them in a place of fear. In fact, when I continued reading his sermon, I felt like I was also getting a much better picture of what John the Baptist was trying to communicate to the people of his time. Only when we have felt the terror of the matter, says Bonhoeffer, can we recognize the incomparable kindness of God. And then he says, God comes into the very midst of evil and death and judges the evil in us and in the world. And by judging us, God cleanses and sanctifies us. God comes to us with grace and love. I hear that and my thoughts go to that first reading for today that we heard. In that well-known passage, we have another prophet of God speaking words that may sound fearful at first. But when Malachi says that the one who is coming will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, he too is actually proclaiming a message of hope. His audience probably knew that when a precious metal like silver is refined, it is melted down so that nothing remains except the pure silver. In that light, they must have heard Malachi saying that this is how God would work with them, like a refiner who would burn away, melt away everything that kept them from being their pure selves, created in God's image. That may have been a fearful thing for them at first. And if that's the case, then fear is where the refining would have had to begin. It's hard to think of anything, really, that keeps us from being our pure selves than fear. God created us to live in community, but fear of those who are different from us keeps us from experiencing the goodness of that divine gift, and it leads us to build walls of separation. God created us in God's image to generously provide like God does for the needs of all. But we fear. We fear what might happen to us if we don't take care of ourselves first. And in that fear, we can easily become selfish and possessive. God created us to live in relationships of trust with one another. But fear keeps us so often from being truly open and honest with one another. And when that happens, there's almost always brokenness, always incompleteness in our relationships. God created us in God's own image, God's beautiful image. But we live in fear that we just aren't good enough. We aren't attractive enough. We aren't whole enough, talented enough, or any other deficiency that we imagine within us. And then there are all of those other kinds of fear, the fear that 
controls us when we have been hurt or violated by someone else, when a relationship has fallen apart, when illness threatens our well-being or even our life. In all of these cases, we can actually feel how fear possesses us, I think. So what, what do we do with all of that, with all of that fear that separates us from God and from our neighbor? Is it just up to us today to hear this challenge and then get over it and to leave here with the commission to just go out there and start being our true, pure selves? To say that would be to contradict everything that we have heard in these three scripture readings for today. In our own hubris, we might think that we are actually capable of filling up valleys and bringing down mountains and making the crooked straight and the rough places smooth. But in reality, that goes far beyond all of our power individually and corporately. And that's why the hope of Advent is never based on some optimistic idea that human beings are just going to get it right or get better or that we are going to change if we just put our mind to it. On the contrary, Advent hope is hope that is always based on the promise of what God will do for us and in us. As Malachi also says, the refining and the purifying of our lives is God's work, not ours. And in effect, I think that's the same message of John the Baptist, who comes proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. There are many ways to understand repentance in the Bible. John chooses language, which is all about turning to God. That is what repentance means for him. And that also, I think, is maybe the simplest way of understanding Advent and what this season is all about. It is a call to turn to God with our entire lives in ways that welcome the coming of Jesus Christ, trusting that the transformation and the change that he brings to us is in fact the change that we need in order to become our pure selves. When I keep reading in the gospel, the story of John, I'm always surprised by the fact that so many people keep coming out to him, seeking him out, wanting to hear what he has to say and wanting to be baptized by him. What was so compelling about his radical message? I guess we could ask the same question today. Why do we keep putting John the Baptist right there between us and Christmas? front and center in the Advent lectionary? Why do we give him the chance every year to call us out as sinners? And why do we keep letting him bring us out into the wilderness where we feel vulnerable and exposed? Maybe it's because of the deep longing that exists, I think, in every single one of us for right relationships the deep longing in all of us for peace and for unity with God 
and with each other. That longing may be buried under layer upon layer of other ungodly things that we have also welcomed into our heart and soul. But I believe that it is there in all of us, ready to be awakened by this radical call of John. Today, some of us hear that radical call from our place on the mountain of power and privilege that has given us a comfortable life and often a spirit of complacency. We like it very much up here on this mountain. But there is, I think, a still a very deep longing within us for true and right relationships with other people that could only happen when our mountain is brought low and their valley is filled. Some of us will hear this call from John today from rough places. Rough places may be of conflict or division. And we know underneath all of our feelings of pride and defensiveness that longed-for reconciliation will only come when we allow God to give us a clean heart and a right spirit again. Some of us hear this call today from a path made crooked by mistakes we have made and by judgments and choices that we regret. And we know deep down that our longing for peace and unity with God will only come when we let God's forgiveness into the depths of our soul and replace all of our guilt and our shame. Whatever the case, John the Baptist is here again, standing between us and Christmas. Not to paralyze us with fear, but to help us turn to God and to welcome the love and grace of Jesus Christ. Amen.